0: Welcome to the brownstein hyatt farber Shrek podcast series. With the passing of the August 3rd deadline for signature gathering for citizen-initiated ballot measures in Colorado, Sarah Mercer and David Meshke discuss what initiatives are already on the ballot, what they expect to make it on the ballot, and notably what will not make it on the ballot this year. They also cover online signature gathering and touch on Tabor and Gallagher Amendment issues going into the November 3rd election.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Brownstein Podcast Series. I'm Sarah Mercer, and I'm here with my colleague, David Meshke. Hi, David. Hi, Sarah. It's been a while. Uh, The last time we recorded a podcast, we were in the office uh, updating our listeners on what's been going on with the statewide ballot measures. But here we are. We're at home.
0: Yeah, it's been quite a change since the last time um, we had won these podcasts, and I know it's been... A few months, but it's it's great to be back recording a podcast um, remotely due to the ongoing pandemic with COVID-19. And we can um, start talking a little bit more about what's going to be on the November 3rd, 2020 ballot for that election.
1: Yeah, well, last time we talked, um, there were still hundreds of measures that were kind of in the queue and potentially could make the ballot we just had a big deadline that passed on Monday, um, which is why we're getting together now. And so let's let's first kind of catch our listeners up. If you could just remind us a little bit about kind of where we are and <laughs> what the proponents of ballot measures have been doing for the last couple of months.
0: Sure. So as you just mentioned on Monday, which was August third, um, was a big deadline for ballot measures that are initiated by citizens of Colorado and that was for returning the signatures in the petitions. And those are the ones that people before the pandemic often saw as they were walking into the grocery stores there would be um, some signature gatherers with a petition and and, and pens and, and wanting to see if you would sign on the petition form. And that's been kind of one of the big things that's been happening right now is, is signature gathering, although that's obviously been a big challenge due to COVID-19. And before that, uh, there was a lot of activity at the Title Board, which we've talked about in previous podcasts. Uh, That is a body that consists of various groups from the state um, that look at the proposed initiatives to see if they comport with a single subject requirement and also to set a title, which is the little summary that you see at the top of your ballot, if these measures actually do make the ballot. And, and Sarah, can you talk a little bit more about some of the additional issues and, and things that have popped up due to the ongoing pandemic as it relates to signatures?
1: Yeah. So the title board, I'm really glad that you mentioned them. Um, they moved their last few meetings uh, on online and virtually and were able to you know, go to a virtual platform so that proponents of measures could appear and they could still do their work. And then what we we also saw the governor issue an executive order uh, allowing for electronic signature gathering. There was a challenge uh, to that. And full disclosure, our firm represented the uh, challengers um, and the plaintiffs in that lawsuit. And eventually, after um, being heard at the trial court level, the Colorado Supreme Court took the case and found that Because the in-person signature gathering requirements are found in the state constitution, the governor's powers of executive order did not extend to those requirements. And so the governor did not have the authority to allow for electronic signature gathering. That, of course, can be changed by the voters at some later date. But even during this time of emergency, the governor doesn't have reach into the provisions of the constitution. So there was, as you said, you know, a lot of scrambling going on on the part of signature gatherers to figure out how to collect signatures when everyone was in quarantine. We saw some really creative solutions. Um, of course, the businesses, as you mentioned, grocery stores where petition uh, signature gatherers tend to go always remained open, but other places that signature gatherers would go farmers markets, um, you know, think of like Taste of Colorado or other street fairs, you know, Cherry Creek Arts Festival concerts, obviously none of those happened. So that did create some challenge for the signature gatherers. And as the quarantine extended and time went on, we had seen signature gatherers creating socially distant opportunities for people to collect signatures in parks. Um, Again, still in front of the grocery stores, as well as uh, having, you know, online signups where someone could come to someone's driveway and in a socially distant and safe way, collect signatures. So we did have some proponents succeed in collecting signatures uh, to submit to the Secretary of State's office. And I always forget the exact number, but David, remind me and our listeners, how many signatures, how many valid signatures do proponents need to make the ballot?
0: Um, yes, Sarah. So this requirement, as as listeners are are well aware, changes by the year. And this cycle, it is one hundred and twenty four thousand six hundred thirty two signatures. So a very exact number, uh, a little over a oh, just a shade under one hundred twenty five thousand. So the the number is actually tied to a previous election. And remind me again, Sarah, how how that's calculated exactly. I know it it pertains to the previous election and number of voters.
1: Yeah, it's a percentage of the the votes that are cast for the Secretary of State's office. So uh, it really does depend on how many votes are cast for that uh, particular office. And then that percentage becomes the percentage of signatures that are required to be collected. So like you said, David, on this August 3rd date that just passed this deadline, all the signatures are in. So Any ballot measure that didn't have signatures submitted on its behalf, they're out of luck, they're out of the process, but the ones who did submit are still in the queue. So our universe of initiatives is narrowing even more. But when will we know exactly what's on the ballot?
0: So we will know on September 4th, uh, so about a month from now, exactly what's on the ballot, because by that date, the Secretary of State's office has to Finish its review of the signatures that have been submitted by the proponents. So that's going to be our next big deadline. And that's only two months before the election. Um, so we're, we're getting into crunch time now.
1: So let's talk about what is on the ballot, because we'll know exactly what everything that's on the ballot on September 4th. But we do know a few measures that are on the ballot. So I think we've talked about a couple of them before, but uh, just remind us and our listeners, you know, what's on the ballot and did anything new make it onto the ballot
0: since we last talked? Yeah. So we have three measures that are on the ballot as of right now. And as as Sarah mentioned, we, we've talked about these measures before. Um, one of them is citizen qualification of electors, and it essentially changes the wording in the Colorado Constitution to state that only a U.S. citizen instead of every U.S. citizen is qualified to vote. Um, it doesn't seem to have a lot of practical impact. It seems to be more semantics there. Another one would restore the gray wolf to Colorado um, and require a Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission to hold hearings to gather information uh, and begin steps necessary for wolf reintroduction by the end of 2023. It also would um, assist landowners in preventing and resolving conflicts between gray wolves and livestock and compensate livestock owners. Um, This appears to be a very contentious um, ballot uh, measure, although the Denver Post says that it appears to be likely to pass. There's there's fierce opposition from rangers, hunters, county commissioners. um, So we're probably likely to see um, quite a bit of advertisements on the radio and TV moving forward as we get close to election. And then the third one is a prohibition on late-term abortions um, that would prohibit physicians from performing an abortion if the gestational age is at least 22 weeks, and that it would impose penalties on physicians who do so, um, such as the Class one misdemeanor, three-year suspension of license. Um, but the measure would provide an exception to save the life of the mother. What's interesting about these three... Measures that are on the ballot is that they all gathered signatures, at least in large part before the pandemic hit Colorado, and therefore they had a leg up on a number of these other measures that did not have the benefit of of that timing.
1: The prohibition of late term abortions ballot measure, as you mentioned, had collected its signatures and had submitted them actually, and when the pandemic hit, it was in the middle of its cure period. They ended up actually filing their own lawsuit against the governor's executive order on electronic signature gathering in federal court because the order expressly excluded any measure that was in the process of curing signatures from being able to take advantage of the electronic signature gathering. Of course, all of that ended up being moot um, with the Colorado Supreme Court ruling, but they were able to do it anyway and ended up um, you know, making it through uh, the finish line. So those three measures are, are on the ballot. We've got a few in the hopper. Again, we're sort of narrowing our universe uh, to the initiatives that are left. And we've got four measures that submitted signatures. We have five measures that submitted signatures. We've got one that has already been resolved. Um, I'll mention that really quickly. We were, David, you and I were a little surprised on Monday. Uh, to see the uh, to see the Secretary of State's office actually come out with an email regarding a statement of insufficiency for one measure, the expungement of eligible criminal records. Uh, it was a surprise because the measures were all due Monday. I guess we saw the email on Tuesday, but when we looked into it, they had only submitted um, a few hundred signatures so they were far short of the of the threshold that was required. but it's obvious the Secretary of State's office is doing their work. There are four measures uh, that appear to have collected, at least just from our anecdotal information and our on-the-ground information, appear to have a chance to make the ballot. What ones are those, David?
0: Yeah, so those four um, are measures that that cover a wide variety of topics. Um, One of them would allow Voters in Central City, Blackhawk, and Cripple Creek, which for those that live in Colorado, uh, associate those towns with gambling to actually um, expand the bet amounts and the types of games that is allowed in the casinos and other um, similar places in, in those towns. And then uh, money would go to community colleges. There's another one that involving paid family and medical leave and, um, insurance, and it would create a statewide paid family medical leave insurance program and would provide partial wage replacement benefits for up to 12 weeks per year to eligible employees. There is a third that would create a voter approval requirement for the creation of certain fee-based enterprises, and enterprises is a complicated topic that we can talk about a later podcast, but the measure would essentially require voter approval to be obtained in order for new programs and also older programs that wanted to be enterprises to create a state enterprise. And then the last one is a state income tax rate reduction. And unlike the previous ones that uh, are a little more complicated, this one would simply reduce the state income tax from 4.63% to 4.55%.
1: And for those who remember us talking about the paid family and medical leave insurance program initiatives, you'll remember that there were several versions of this ballot measure that were um, in process. And the one that ended up making it through was initiative number 283. So that was the, the sort of their last version, if you will, of the measure that they decided to put forward. Interestingly, there was some conversation around whether or not the proponents of the initiative were going to go forward because when the legislature, which actually took a two-month break, because a very unprecedented break uh, because of the pandemic, when they came back, they ended up uh, passing a very scaled-back paid sick leave bill that gives a couple of days of sick leave to every employee in the state so that they can take time off if they get sick. And that's not limited to just being sick with COVID. So there was some conversation and question about whether or not the proponents of this more comprehensive paid family and medical leave insurance program were going to go forward with their initiative. And it looks like they have. So the other measure that you mentioned uh, regarding the fee-based enterprises uh, we had talked before. We've had several podcasts about the Tabor ballot measures that we saw uh, from the Colorado Fiscal Institute. That were uh, and none of their measures, by the way, are have have moved forward. But you know, there's a lot of talk around Tabor. Around, of course, certainly the Tabor restriction that uh, the legislature, neither the legislature nor any local government can pass a tax increase or a new tax without voter approval. But one way that lawmakers have sort of found. A sort of a legal way to generate revenue is through uh, enterprises and through enacting fees versus taxes. And um, very interestingly, that this ballot measure is, I think, trying to shore up kind of that other um, method by which the lawmakers use to raise revenue. So those are the four that are in the queue. As you mentioned, you know, we won't know until September 4th whether or not they make it. Um, well, that'll be the latest that we know. We'll be watching, obviously, the Secretary of State's office to see as they review these, the signatures uh, submitted on behalf of the proponents of these initiatives, whether or not they have a sufficient or an insufficient amount. Unlike other measures that submitted earlier, including the, uh, the prohibition of late-term abortion bill, because we've passed this August 3rd deadline, there's no cure period. So everyone who submitted their signatures, they're sort of stuck with that. Isn't that Right.
0: Yeah, that's right, Sarah. And um, in addition to that, I mean, we've seen a lot of measures uh, that have been affected by the uh, challenges with signature gathering due to the pandemic. As those who follow our our ballot tracker know, there were a significant number of measures that were submitted to legislative council um, this cycle, over 300. And by our count, at least 14 of these measures that actually went through the Title Board process were unable to gather a sufficient amount of signatures and submit those petitions to the Secretary of State. That, um, so the, those measures have now been characterized as expired, and, and those cover a, a large range of, of topics. Um, from uh, tobacco tax to um, state income taxes to oil and gas and voting, including um, election day as a state holiday and, and, and vouchers for campaigns. And, and Sarah, can you talk a little bit more about um, some of those that uh, are, are significant and actually may make it to the ballot in a different way?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think it, it is worth noting that, you know, in our conversations with uh, the signature gathering firms um, that are used, they really were able to find a way uh, to collect signatures. And I think the fact that these four measures uh, got on the ballot uh, demonstrates that it was possible. They saw um, you know, a little bit of a dip in their realization rates, but I think as there was adaptations, made and outreach that was done in different ways, outreach through social media, like I mentioned, doing kind of those one on one visits, um, finding those socially distant ways to collect signatures. Um, It was certainly possible. There's a couple of measures uh, that did not submit signatures that ended up, you know, I think being the reason that they didn't submit signatures were for reasons that were outside of the ballot measure process altogether. We have talked in our past podcast that the initiative process in addition to allowing citizens to petition for their own ideas onto the ballot that their fellow citizens can vote on, it is increasingly uh, used as a method to gain leverage in conversations and dialogue and negotiations at the legislature. So the paid family and medical leave ballot measure is a good example of that. We saw those initiatives filed when the conversations around paid family and medical leave insurance program were really kind of hot and heavy in the legislature. And the stake, that really drove the stakeholders kind of together to try to figure out a solution. We sort of similarly saw that with the tobacco tax revenue uh, to fund a statewide universal preschool program, which is one of the governor's top priorities. Those measures were not submitted um, and signatures weren't gathered on those because there was a deal struck at the legislature and the legislature is actually referring a measure to the voters to increase the tobacco tax and to create a tax on nicotine products, the vaping products. And so uh, we do see some of that interplay here. And it is just, as we've commented and observed before there's an increasing tie together between what happens before the title board and the initiative process and what happens at the legislature. Um, and those calendars don't exactly match up. So, you know, we saw this more limited uh, paid sick leave measure done at the state capitol, which this year ended, their session ended in June instead of in May. But, you know, as we now know, uh, you know, the, the ballot measure process doesn't really finish until August. And so uh, those calendars don't exactly match up, but there's definitely interplay between the two. So in addition to the tobacco tax ballot measures being kind of sidelined because there was a deal that was struck at the legislature, importantly, we saw as we have really since 2014, this kind of perennial oil and gas fight play out in front of the title board. And there were several measures this year, several measures involving everything from, uh, you know, severance tax issues to um, issues around setbacks, again, as well as issues around creating a more independent Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Board. And again, full disclosure, uh, we worked on and represented the proponents of those particular initiatives of the independent Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission Board. So we saw that fight play out and what ended up happening, the the stakeholders there really were, you know, trying to, I think, negotiate a solution. And there was a bill that was passed in the legislature, not this session, but last session back in 2019, uh, Senate bill 281. And there was kind of agreement and the governor's office really pushed for all of the stakeholders to allow that bill to really, in that legislation, to be fully implemented before there are additional changes that get made. So, I don't see the stakeholders kind of on, on either side of this issue ceding any ground in terms of I think we're still gonna we're gonna see it during this next election cycle and before 2022, we're gonna see these issues pop up. They're not going anywhere. But I do think that it's possible that we might see it might just be a little bit quieter and calmer. And certainly from a voter perspective and on the ballot, they're not gonna see the oil and gas issues like they have in the in the same way that they have in the past. The last one that I'll mention, you know, kind of off the list of the ballot measures that were approved to circulate but didn't end up submitting any signatures was the graduated income tax. So this was Initiative 271 that we had talked about before. And this would have changed Colorado's income tax from a flat income tax to a graduated income tax system that much more mirrors the way that federal taxes are collected and would have increased taxes for certain taxpayers. So that measure, they did not collect enough signatures. They have said that they're going to be back in 2022. So we anticipate that we're going to see them again. Were there any others that you wanted to mention, David, or is that did I cover it all?
0: Uh, you, you covered it all. And, and you've already mentioned one of the legislative referred measures that will be on the ballot. There's actually going to be two more. These are both constitutional amendments if they are passed. One concerns charitable games such as bingo and raffles. It looks like we're, we're getting a lot of gaming and gaming-like measures um, that voters can can discuss. And then another would be to repeal the Gallagher Amendment, which has been a, a controversial topic in Colorado. Um, as a reminder, the Gallagher Amendment states that home values can only make up, um, no more than forty five percent of the state property tax base, while non residential property owners, usually commercial, have to contribute fifty five percent. So that means that if home values rise faster than business property. Um, the tax rates paid by homeowners are required to drop to maintain that split. Obviously, due to the pandemic, this the traditional tax base has has altered, and the, the Gallagher Amendment um, is is under renewed scrutiny um, because of that.
1: Yeah, the Gallagher Amendment combined with Tabor creates a very challenging fiscal, creates a lot of fiscal constraints for the legislature and for the state budget. And while we have seen the taxes on um, home values just plummet, you know, taxes on commercial properties have gone up. And it was really pretty remarkable to see such a bipartisan support of a repeal of Gallagher. There have been legislative interim committees that, who have studied this issue for the last three years. Nothing had come of it. Um, and this measure was referred in, in sort of that post-break that the legislature took because of the pandemic and um, after the economic forecast that showed that there was a $2.1 billion hole in the state budget. And so uh, Gallagher you know, really affects local governments and special districts you know counties fire districts library districts really rely school districts rely on property taxes in order to to survive and to fund you know the the services that they provide and so in addition to helping with the state fiscal issues there is a lot of concern around what is the economic fallout going to be for local communities and that's when we really saw the um, legislators rally around Gallagher. Now, I anticipate we're going to see a very strong opposition campaign to this because those those folks who are very fiscally conservative, the the real champions of Tabor, the ones who really want to see government do as much as it can with what it has and not change things. Um, I think everyone agrees that there should be uh, that we need a solution to Gallagher, but um, not everyone agrees that it should be. Uh, repealed. And so I anticipate we're going to see some opposition adds to that as well. So that was really very interesting. There is one other measure that's on the ballot and we have not seen um, a veto referendum, David, I think in, I mean, decades for sure. Um, and this actually pa- has been on the ballot and was certified and approved for the ballot last year. So we've known about this for, for, for over a year, but there was, a, there was legislation that passed in the legislature in 2019 to have Colorado join the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Now, this is an effort to kind of get rid of the Electoral College and have the popular vote really decide who, decide who is president. And so Colorado would join that compact it wouldn't take effect until there are enough states to meet that 273 electoral college threshold, but that would bring Colorado into, um, into that compact. It was hotly debated uh, in the legislature. Republicans and Democrats alike had concerns about it. It ended up passing, and then we saw citizens go and collect signatures Basically, to repeal this piece of legislation that was passed, and now voters are going to get to vote on it. So, how does that exactly work, David? Is it true that they that the proponents of a veto referendum they just collect signatures like they would of any other citizen initiated measure, right? Yeah,
0: that's that's correct. I mean, and for those that were doing that, um, fortunately they had uh, 2019 as as the year that they went about it and, and didn't have the challenges that. That others faced this past year. Um, But the process is similar in terms of that proponents of of that veto referendum have to um, gather signatures and submit those signatures and have those signatures verified.
1: So that will be fascinating to hear how that campaign goes. I imagine the National Popular Vote effort is obviously a national effort. I imagine we're going to see some money put in for advertisements, uh, trying to educate voters on what this means to have a veto referendum on this. And it's a pretty, it's kind of technical because this idea that it doesn't take effect until there's enough uh, states to meet the 273 electoral college vote threshold. Like, I just wonder like how voters are going to be educated on this particular measure. uh, And, and what that outcome is going to be will be very, very interesting to see. So, we do have an election, November third. <laughs> That's what we're sort of moving towards. We've got a lot of other things that are going to be on the ballot too, in addition to our uh, to our ballot measures. Um, David, what are some of the things that we're anticipating that people are going to be voting on, and and what turnout might look like, that kind of thing.
0: Well, Sarah, you've already mentioned that veto referendum, which um, if those who who are listening remember uh, was in large part, a a reaction to Hillary Clinton winning the popular vote, but Donald Trump winning the Electoral College in 2016, which is a nice segue to... What's also on the ballot in in 2020 Which is another um, presidential election Um, So we know that it's going to be um, President Trump against um, Democratic nominee Joe Biden Who's former vice president Under under, um, former President Obama We also have a number of uh, Statewide elections Here in Colorado Uh, One of the most prominent is for U.S. Senate um, and that will be the incumbent Cory Gardner versus former Governor John Hickenlooper Um, That Senate race is going to Be all over the airwaves, and it already has been um, in large part because it may help decide who has the majority in the Senate. Um, In addition to that, um, because U.S. House races are every two years, they're they're all across the um, state of Colorado for this election cycle, and and then there's a number of uh, local races and local ballot measures. So the, the ballot that everyone receives in the mail, um, because Colorado does have a mail-in voting process, is going to be um, very extensive and, and will probably take uh, more than a few minutes to fill out.
1: <laughs> yeah, you definitely want to like get a cup of coffee, I think, while you do it. Um, and that blue book, I, I think, is going to be pretty thick. Notable congressional House race, uh, You know, I think something that really caught the national media attention was over in uh, CD3, which is more on the western slope—that is Congressman Scott Tipton's district—but um, he he had a, a very strong primary challenger, uh, Lauren Beaubert, and she ended up uh, winning that primary election. So she is going to face Democratic uh, nominee Diane Mish Bush, uh, who is a county commissioner out in that area, um, served in the state legislature, is very well known um, there. And so one big change that we're going to see in Colorado, no matter what happens, is we're going to have another woman in Congress from Colorado. And given that it's 2020, the census is happening, redistricting is just on the horizon, and Colorado is very likely to go from seven congressional districts to eight. So this will also probably be our last congressional House election. Uh, with a federal House election with uh, seven members and, and not eight. We're probably going to see another one. So there is a lot at stake. David, you mentioned the local ballot measures. Um, really looking forward in our next podcast, um, after we have a sense of what is exactly going to be on the, the ballot for statewide measures, to talk a little bit more in depth about what we're seeing at the local level as well. So we look forward to updating our listeners uh, on that too. Well, great. Is there anything that we've missed? We covered a lot of ground today. We had a lot to catch up on.
0: (laughs) Well, for anything that we we did miss, especially as it relates to citizen initiated ballot measures, um, our listeners can go on to the Brownstein ballot tracker um, and and follow that, especially um, as the September 4th deadline for the Secretary of State to review the signature submitted um, gets closer. And um, as Sarah said, we'll update everybody um, after that deadline on what's going to be on the ballot, including. more of the local races and and local measures.
1: Well, thanks, David. We'll talk soon.
0: Thanks, Sarah. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.